Mark tells us in his opening verse that he's telling the story of good news. Gospel. We began this series last week, and we saw that gospel entails a change in authority, a change in power. And the four gospels are the story of, and this is borrowing the title of one of Tom Wright's books on the gospels, of how God became king. They're telling us that story. Admittedly, though, the story the Gospels tell isn't the straightforward story of enthronement that we might expect and would expect. There is misunderstanding, conflict, betrayal, crucifixion, which looks like certain defeat. And then, of course, the punctuation, exclamation point of resurrection. And we'll see all of these dimensions in due course. But this is exactly the story that Mark and the other Gospel writers have set out to tell, the story of God taking the throne. The good news is that Jesus, in Jesus, God is ruling and reigning. So Jesus is the subject of his preaching and teaching throughout all of Galilee is what? The kingdom of God has come near, is at hand. God is on the move in an entirely new way and in a way that you have been longing for, Jesus is saying. And with that move of God comes a change in what is possible in the world, and a change in what is possible in your life and in my life. If only, as we'll hear Mark say again and again in the months to come, we will listen and respond. The coming of God to rule and reign, this is exactly what God's people were longing for. One day, their hopes were set that God would return to his people, and when he returned, that he would liberate them, that he would forgive them of their sins, that he would shepherd them, he would pour out his spirit upon them and cleanse them and bring them into new life. Many prophecies in the Old Testament pointed to this reality. This would be a new exodus, a release from bondage, and another entry led by God and his spirit into the promised land of life. But these promises remained unfilled in Jesus' day. Yes, they had returned to the land in part. Yes, they had rebuilt the temple in part. But one key factor never took place. One key detail, the Shekinah glory, the the, the cloud of God's glory, never re-entered the temple. The presence never came back. And so they knew that the promises had yet to be fulfilled, and they longed for these promises to come about. When Mark, in his opening prologue, as we looked at last week, when he quotes Isaiah, in verses 2 and 3. And he actually is quoting Malachi and Exodus and Isaiah in in these two verses. But when he quotes this, he is evoking this world of hope. These expectations. He's saying in no uncertain terms that the story that he is about to tell, this story about Jesus, he's already announced him, Jesus, the the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, this story is the story that fulfills all all that Israel has been hoping for and waiting for. The new exodus is upon us. The age of salvation and renewal for which the Jewish people were hoping has come. Now, if the good news, if gospel, is about a change in authority, about Jesus taking the throne, then it will come as no surprise that as we move into the first chapter of Mark, beyond the prologue and the opening scenes, that this is all about authority. It's all about the authority of Jesus. If Jesus doesn't have authority, there is no gospel. No good news. 
Authority is about power. It's about command. It's about capability. And this fast-paced, action-packed opening chapter of Mark's Gospel highlights the fact that Jesus has authority. That's what we're going to explore together this morning. And always in preaching, I'm drawing on the insights of many who have gone before, but I particularly want to mention the work of a New Testament scholar who has spent his career focused on the Gospel of Mark named Rick Watts. His work has been particularly helpful, and some of the textual insights that I'll make this morning arise from his study and my learning from him. I want to say at the outset that this raises questions, this thing of authority for, for a lot of us. Does Jesus have authority? Does he have real and absolute power? What's his authority for? And do we believe this? These questions about Jesus and his identity and his authority permeate so deeply the narrative that Mark puts together. Just a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, that I have to believe that Mark, that Jesus' followers, that Mark knows that Jesus' followers really wrestle with this question. And it's no different for us today. When we watch hurricanes devastate towns in North Carolina, or gas lines explode in our own city, when we experience personal suffering, or the suffering of those we love, or pervasive injustice, or the abuse of earthly authority, Or just a sense of nothing changing, of disappointment. It's really easy to start doubting that God has any strength or authority at all. And that may be where some of you are this morning. You're here out of habit, but perhaps not out of conviction. I know from my own heart that wrestling in the Christian life always comes back to this question, do I believe? Does God have power? Does God have authority? Is God good? These are the questions that drive us deeply. And I know from my own experience and journey that fighting that battle inside is an important battle to fight, that that is where so much of the battleground or the battle is won or lost in the depth of our own hearts. This question matters. Does Jesus have authority? And do you believe that this morning? It's a basic question, fundamental. And into our wrestling with that question, does Jesus have authority? Into every stubborn nook and cranny of your heart and of mine, Mark chapter 1 resounds, yes, he does. And we're going to explore that together. It would be helpful if you have your Bible with you and open up. This passage is way too long to put on the screen behind me. Uh, If you've got a phone with a Bible app, feel free to get it out and scroll through uh, along the way. Jesus' authority, the demonstration of it, is seen clearly. Verses 16 through 20, he calls the first disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And what do they do? They immediately leave what they were doing, and follow him. That is authority. That is power coming off the page. Then in the first major incident of this account, verses 21 through 28, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day among the scribes. 
And people were astonished, verse 22, at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes, not as the establishment, not as the status quo. Again, here we're not told the content of Jesus' teaching. We'll get plenty of that in the chapters to come. But people recognize that Jesus has authority as he teaches, and that he is different, categorically so, from those who are teaching them up to this point. Next, the authority that is obvious in his teaching is now made manifest in his actions, specifically by his exorcism of an unclean spirit. Exorcisms are important and a routine feature in the Gospel of Mark. No doubt because they show Jesus directly confronting and subjugating Satan and his minions, who, as we noted last week from the prologue and Jesus' time in the wilderness, is humanity's real enemy. The devil and demons are out to diminish your humanity. They're out to get you to believe lies. They're out to to bind you and chain you up. And throughout Mark's Gospel, especially in chapter 5, which we'll look at in a few weeks, we see Jesus encountering these spirits and having authority over them. And he does it uniquely. Unlike other accounts of exorcisms in the ancient world, Jesus doesn't invoke a kind of other power, or and he doesn't use a specific formula. He simply commands an unadorned spoken word, like, let there be light. He commands, be silent, verse 25, and come out of him. There is no negotiation. There's no plea bargaining. There's no deal being made. There is sheer and simple obedience, which shows Jesus' true authority and power. And the onlookers cannot help but remark in verse 27, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. We continue on. Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law of a fever by touch. In verse 34, he heals many who were sick and casts out many demons. In verse 39, another summary statement. He's preaching and casting out demons. And then the second major episode, which bookends the first, because both deal with purity. An unclean spirit is unclean and impure. A leper is the height of impurity, according to ancient Israel. And this now happens again, where Jesus, disregarding the ritual purity laws of his day, which forbade contact with a leper, touches this man who is an outcast and commands him to be clean. It's not a supplication. He's not appealing to another power. But in like that first encounter with the unclean spirit, he simply says, be clean. And the man is immediately cleansed. Our church has roots in Rwanda, in Africa, and for the first 10 years or so of my ordained ministry, my orders were held in the province of Rwanda, in the Anglican Church of Rwanda. I was previously in Washington, D.C., and we had a a relationship with a Rwandese church, a church from Rwanda, and the priest and his wife came over to Washington to stay with us, Deo and Beatrice, and they lived in a village in Rwanda. They had never been to the States before, and they stayed in Mandy's in my home for eight days. We gave them our bedroom, and they enjoyed the time there. And one day, um, and by the way, I'll never forget, just this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I'll never forget when Deo said to me on that trip, he said, you Americans, you are so rich in things, but poor in prayer. Of course, that will always stick with me, and it is so deeply true. 
and he showed me that by watching his life and getting to know him over a couple years. A year later, I went to visit him and Beatrice in Rwanda, actually, and spent some time with them in their home. But early in their stay, Mandy was doing a load of laundry in our, in our laundry machine in the basement, and Beatrice was there with her, and her eyes were wide open at this thing called a washing machine. And at one point in the exchange, she asked Mandy, how long does it take? And Mandy said, oh, about 30 minutes. And she just gasped and was overwhelmed and amazed, so much so that she had to go into the bedroom and collect herself for a while. Here was something new, something beyond her wildest imaginations. What an obvious reflection, by the way, on our privilege, which was not lost on us, I assure you. But she was astonished and amazed at seeing something that she had never seen before, that did something that she'd done a lot of her life up to that point in a whole new way. And I would submit to you, that's the kind of response that Jesus was getting in this first encounter with him in Galilee. People were blown away. We've never seen anything like this. We've never encountered this kind of power and authority. And that's why they were astonished. And that's why they were amazed. Here's an authority that can command unclean spirits. We're overwhelmed. Something new and different. So Jesus' fame increases, verse 29. And the whole city gathers at the door of his home where he's staying in verse 33. And they bring to him all the sick people and the people with demons in them. And he deals with them. And everyone is looking for him, verse 37. And finally, at the end of the chapter... Verse 45, people were coming to him from every corner. They were amazed. Something was going on. There was a buzz to what was going on with Jesus. This would have been going wildfire on Twitter if they had had it back then. Who are people encountering? And they don't know. But some people know, or some things know, in this earliest account. And it's surprisingly, perhaps to us, in chapter 1, it's the demons. So he comes in with authority, but whose authority is this? Who is this Jesus? We're told in verse 35 that they knew him. And in his encounter with the unclean spirit, there's a significant revelation that is made. In verse 24, the unclean spirit says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, this title, the Holy One of God, is without precedent in the ancient literature. But there is one place where a variation of this title is used quite frequently, and it should come as no surprise that it's in the prophet Isaiah, whom Mark has already quoted and cited. Repeatedly in Isaiah, Yahweh is referred to as the Holy One of Israel. What is the gospel, the good news, according to Isaiah? It's that Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, is returning to Zion to rule and to reign, to bring salvation and forgiveness and deliverance, and to set his people free and bring them new life. The story that Mark is telling is the story of the long-awaited gospel of Isaiah being fulfilled now in the coming of Jesus. That somehow in Jesus' coming, Yahweh himself is returning to Zion. Things are beginning to break loose. Mark says this in all kinds of ways for those who have ears to hear. Exorcisms are a significant feature, but exorcisms were never understood to be the work of the Messiah, the long-awaited coming king who would take David's throne. They were the work of God. Or consider the healing of the leper. Leprosy was a disease that only God could heal. There's an interesting account in 2 Kings 5 when Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, comes to Israel 
and asks the king of Israel to heal him of leprosy. And here's the king's response. Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? What's the clear implication? That healing leprosy, that is God's realm. Not the king's. Not the Messiah's. And we'll see this again in quite explicit ways next week in that well-known story at the beginning of chapter 2 of the healing of the paralytic that is let down through the roof. There's this lovely petition in Isaiah 64. And in Isaiah, it tells the story of the new exodus of God coming to return with his people, but his people remain obstinate, and it doesn't happen. And the last chapters of Isaiah are wrestling with the unfulfillment of these promises. And there's this wonderful moment in Isaiah 64, 1, where the text just says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And then the mountains would quake, and people would respond with awe and astonishment. God, return. Open up the heavens. Come back. What happens in the prologue in Mark 1, when Jesus goes to his baptism? If you've got your Bible open, in verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. That's not the gentle word for open. That's the violent word for ripping, for open. It's the exact same word, and this is beautiful, that's used in Mark 15, when Jesus is crucified. And what happens to the temple, the the curtain in the temple? Schizo. It's ripped. It's torn in two from top to bottom. When the heavens open in Mark 1, when the, when the temple is torn, the curtain is torn in Mark 15, God's presence floods into his world. And here we see in that baptism account that the heavens are open. And what happens? What's poured out? It's the Spirit of God, the very presence of God being poured out upon his son Jesus, his beloved son. And then we move into the announcement of the kingdom. And now we're in this chapter of Mark 1 where all of a sudden, All all these things are starting to break loose. Jesus is encountering demons. He's encountering sicknesses. He's encountering a leper. And people are being healed. And things are changing. And Mark couldn't be saying in in, in much clearer terms, that prayer, rend the heavens and come down, has been answered in Jesus coming into the world. God is entering in. And things are beginning to get a bit nuts and breaking loose. When Jesus, in verse 35, goes to a desolate place very early in the morning to pray, Mark's saying there is no distinction. His ministry, his agenda, is God's agenda. He's rooted in God. So Jesus has authority. The authority that he brings is the authority of Yahweh, of God, which begins to do great things in the midst of the people. But thirdly, what is this authority for? The two key moments are, again, the healing of the exorcism of the unclean spirit and the healing of the leper in chapter 1. And these bookend the chapter because they both, as I mentioned earlier, deal with purity. Leprosy in particular was associated with the imagery of exile, of covenant breaking, of idolatry and the uncleanness that results from it. And by restoring purity to the leper, and by restoring purity to the man with the unclean spirit, it's as if Jesus is saying to all who have ears to hear, I am bringing Israel back from exile. I am making clean. I am making whole. I am bringing to fullness of life. I am going to renew my people and be a light to the nations. The first encounter happens in the synagogue, which is the gathering place of God's people. On the Sabbath day, 
which is the moment when people are remembering the exodus, the deliverance of God's people, and they're looking forward to the future of God's rest that hasn't yet come. And it takes place among the scribes, the theological authorities. And there's a comment being made here. That though the the scribes are there, though they're in the temple or the synagogue, and though they're reading Torah, there is yet still a man with an unclean spirit in their midst. Things, the status quo, seems to be broken. And in walks Jesus into the heart of Israel's institutions with a simple command, come out. He begins to set things upside down. And this contrast between the status quo and the establishment, between the new thing that God is doing in Jesus, is is what the gospel begins to unveil for us chapter after chapter. And it, of course, will bring conflict. And we'll dive into that conflict starting next week. There are five conflict stories in a row after chapter 1. Jesus appears with authority. The authority is God's authority. And there is now conflict because he's turning things upside down. And the establishment is threatened. But Jesus' authority is for building up. For making clean. For making whole. The God that he reveals, and this is really interesting, and this is my last point. The demons know who he is. But what does Jesus say to the demons? Or the first one, the unclean spirit. Be quiet. In verse 34, when it, sa- it says that he wouldn't permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And then when he heals the leper, he's kind of angry with the leper. That's another sermon altogether. He says to tell no one. What's going on here? Why? This is the power and mighty deeds section of Mark's gospel. It lasts all the way up to chapter 8. Jesus, who is, who knows who he is, wants to control how his identity will be understood. He wants to make clear what he's revealing about God and his kingdom and his purposes. And so he doesn't give the demons the right to declare his identity as the Holy One of God. Mark's already told us in verse 1 that Jesus is the Son of God. But in the narrative, that identity remains hidden. And Jesus doesn't want it to come about in the section all about mighty deeds and power because he doesn't want people to have the wrong impression that all God is about is this kind of big stuff power. That wasn't very technical, but you know what I mean. His identity begins to be unveiled in chapter 8 when when Peter says, you are the Messiah. And what happens immediately after that? Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. And he unpacks and undoes and redefines their understanding of what his authority is for, of what he's revealing about God himself who's coming to, to be present with his people through him. And it's not until we get to the cross the bloody cross, Jesus hanging as a defeated criminal on a Roman cross, that you get the identity of Jesus unveiled and unleashed on the lips of a centurion who says finally and definitively and clearly, truly, this man was the Son of God. It's because Jesus wants us to know that his authority, the authority of God, is an authority and a power that is always working toward love of the other. 
that's always pouring itself out for the sake of the other. And that is such a dynamic part and a beautiful part of the Gospel of Mark. And that is the power, that authority, the unique authority of God that will pour itself out for the sake of the world on the cross. That is what defines God, according to Mark's Gospel and according to Jesus and His ministry. That is what reveals God. And Jesus doesn't want the demons to preemptively make Him known as the Son of God. Because he doesn't want people to run off with the wrong idea. He needs time to reveal it in his own pace and structure. Of course, he does miraculous events that cause a lot of questions, but it's on his terms because that's where the gospel is headed. The authority and the power of God is the authority and power expressed in love for the other at great cost to oneself. And it's that authority and power and no other that has the power to defeat the greatest enemy. Satan. It's the character of God, the love of God, the power of God, expressed in the cross that has the power to overcome all powers of darkness. Is it any wonder then that Mark's Gospel's primary impetus to us as listeners, as followers, is to take up our cross with Jesus and embody that character and authority and power in a life of love? That's what will overcome the great enemy. That's the journey that we're invited into. He's got authority. Things are breaking loose. It's an authority to bring life. To redefine purity, to redefine Israel, to redefine your life and mine. You may feel like a leper. You may feel possessed by an unclean spirit. Do you believe that Jesus has this divine authority to make you well? Let's pray.